I'm glad you're listening. I'm glad to have a podcast that we can offer to people who were not able to be in worship with us this last Sunday. I'm glad to be able to do lots of different things on this podcast. A lot of it is what is preached on Sunday mornings, but there's a lot of other content that we've done, um, conversations that we've had with different people who've come into the studio. It's really neat to have this set up and to be able to offer this resource to really anyone who wants it. I'm not sure if you're aware, but this church actually has more media engagement than the vast majority of churches, and it's because we've put a lot of time and effort into making sure that we produce good quality content for the upbuilding of the saints, so I hope you are built up in this time. We've been covering 1 Corinthians, which of course has 16 chapters. We spent two weeks on chapter 7 because it was very demanding, and then uh, this is going to be the second week on chapter 15, and I, I went ahead and covered all of chapter 16 as well. So we're about to be done. It's been a very impactful time for me. I read a large commentary alongside all of this stuff. Um, it is It has really been a good thing for me as a pastor and as a believer, and I hope it's been good for you to listen. Um, I'm going to ask you to consider going deep with this, making sure that you have covered all 16 chapters with me, but also I went through all 16 chapters of Romans earlier this year. Romans and 1 Corinthians together form a very good basis for understanding Paul, understanding the gospel, understanding the the the, the essence of the church, the nature of forgiveness and salvation. I... Uh, I've benefited so much from this. I, I really hope you have too. This last um, session that you're you're going to listen to from worship on Sunday, we're dealing with the bodily resurrection. We're dealing with the principles that we have learned throughout the first letter to the church in Corinth about the nature of the Christian faith, the nature of the church, and it's all coming together in this wonderful climax around the bodily resurrection and the hope we have in Christ Jesus. I hope you enjoy it. I, I, there, it's, it's a very frustrating thing as a pastor to only have this short time to talk about eternal mysteries that are just incomprehensible in their beauty and glory. So forgive me for my shortcomings in um, not being able to do this well, but I love what I do, so... I'm just very blessed to be able to do it and to have people who listen to it and commit to grow alongside me. It's really been amazing um, doing ministry here for over eight years and having spent time in God's Word with some of these people for eight years and watching the Lord do this amazing growth and transformation in their lives. So let me just exhort you, if you haven't listened to me very much, if you haven't spent time in God's Word, or if you've listened to me a lot and you just have written me off or you've read the Word a lot but you haven't let it speak to you, the whole point of this is to lead a transformed life in Christ Jesus. And so I pray you let that happen. I pray that um, that that spending time with me in God's Word is transformative to you in ways that make you more like Jesus because it's only in Christ Jesus that anyone can be saved. I hope you enjoy today's message. Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. 
All right, last week we had to stop halfway through 1 Corinthians 15 because it's a long and in-depth chapter. I've got uh, a couple things that I need to make sure, uh, a couple points that I need to make sure that I make. One, I've got my, uh, I've really enjoyed diving deeper with y'all these last few weeks, and I appreciate y'all having the patience for me as, as I do this. I've read this commentary that has really good quotes in it and really good synopsis synopses of things that it says, and there is a, a, a synopsis at the end of the, the chapter that it wrote up here that I wanted to share with you guys, and it was just kind of summing up what 1 Corinthians has been about. What they said is the life of true wisdom. Remember, we were concerned with what wisdom was in chapter 2. The life of true wisdom, which rejects sexual immorality, you remember those chapters, rejects greed, and rejects idolatry. We've talked about all of these sinful desires that, that we have that the Corinthians were succumbing to. He's saying we've addressed all these in favor of a life of integrity before the Lord, the same Lord who was raised from the dead and whose reign uh, as a king will consummate God's redemptive plan is the only life with ultimate meaning. That's the only kind of life that we can live that has meaning in that it reflects the continuity, continuity means connected nature, between God's renewed humanity both before and after the resurrection. So what we're going to be talking about today, continuing talking about, is the bodily resurrection. Christians, it's anathema to us, the notion that we would be raised in spirit, but not that our bodies would be freed from death. It's always been fundamental and foundational to the Christian faith that God is so powerful that he redeems not just our spirits, but our bodies. Amen? That's in the Apostles' Creed. It's, it's universal. It's in the, the Bible, which we're going to read about today. It's in every early creed. Belief in the bodily resurrection is one of those non-optional parts of the faith. There are many things that are not optional. And it's not because we're persnickety or Paul was persnickety. It's because they matter. It impacts how we live. It impacts how we die. It impacts if we're raised how we're raised. So here I had a quote from M.T. Um, Wright. There is an underlying continuity between present bodily life and future bodily life, and this gives meaning and direction to Christian lives today. So if your and my bodies are already in relationship with God, it's not that my spirit in my body is in relationship with God, but my body is just a vessel. That's, that's something different. Our bodies are in relationship with God right now, and what we do with our bodies matters. Amen? A lot of Scripture is very concerned with what we do with our bodies because our bodies are being redeemed. Even now, as they waste away under the forces of nature, God will reverse these forces, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And, of course, I just closed my wrong book. Um, okay, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 35, right? Okay. So, last week I talked to you about how people have two, these aren't the only two, but there are two big approaches to dismissing Scripture, right? You remember me talking about this? One is death by a thousand cuts. They dive in and they try and make different Scriptures problematic for one reason or another, and they turn them against each other. Another thing that they do is they mock 
the scriptures. Oh, oh, you believe in a literal bodily resurrection, huh? Okay, how does that work when your body's gone through decomposition and the worms have eaten you and you've already become part of the soil? Okay, Mr. Scientist, preacher man, how does that work? You know, are we familiar with how mockery works? So Paul anticipates this. He gives broad strokes to the theology and then he, he directly addresses mockers in the section that we're dealing with. Here we go, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? The inference being their, their old body wasted away, right? How foolish. He's saying, if you're asking that kind of question, you're a dummy. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. That's an interesting idea. Verse 37. When you sow... You do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Okay, this is an agricultural metaphor. Okay, if you're going to grow a crop, you have to plant a seed, right? Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he determined, and to each kind of seed he gives his own body, its own body. So he's saying, okay, when you plant a seed in the ground and say you're planting corn, is it just a tiny little cob of corn? No, it's just a little grain. And you put it in the ground, and when it comes out of the ground, it's very different from what you put in the ground, isn't it? But there's a continuity between what it was and what it becomes. There is a genetic sequence that's in there. It's a, you don't plant a pea and get corn. It's a little kernel of corn. There is continuity, but even so, what comes out of the ground is it's similar to but also different from what is planted. He's saying this is a metaphor for our bodies. What is sown is tied to what comes out, but the two are not the same exactly. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same. People, humans, have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and stars differ from star in splendor. So he's, he's, this is a discourse on all the parts of creation and how God's splendor is seen in each one, but we're all agreed also the world we're living in is corrupt and fallen, right? So the, the Christian doctrine here is the imago Dei, God's image is in fallen humanity. We haven't completely defaced God's image entirely. Some of it still remains. But even so, there are different kinds of bodies. We have this space in our brains to understand a dog is not a human, a star is not a human. Uh, we can make these distinctions, and he says there is a distinction between a resurrected body and our bodies that we inhabit right now. By the way, is there anyone in the Bible who we've already seen with a resurrection body? Yeah, Jesus. And he definitely had a body, right? He told them to touch it. And it bore the wounds that he had received on the cross. You remember this? He was able to travel through walls, though. Isn't that weird? It said they had the doors to the room closed, and then all of a sudden he was with them. So there are a lot of things that are mysterious about this body, but it has substance to it. So there is a, 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 a frame of mind that is found in the ancient world. It's found all throughout our culture today, and that is that our bodies, they're so messed up. You can't save these bodies. Rather, the, the next life is all spiritual. We're like ghosts floating around in heaven. That's not the picture you get in the Bible. 
the picture you get is that God redeems every part of fallen creation, including our bodies. And that doesn't mean that our bodies at their worst are going to live forever. That means that God is going to redeem our bodies. So there is no suffering. There is no imperfection. And those wounds that we get at this side of heaven are glorified and become sources of God's glory on our bodies in the resurrection, if you can imagine such a thing. Verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. The body is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. This kind of thinking is very clear for Paul. He raises up two things that are opposite, but the thing that connects these two is it's the same body. There's continuity. I wonder how many more times I'm going to say this today. It's not a different body. It's a new body restoring the old body. I'm going to tell you all something not many people know here, and it comes from knowing the Greek. The word natural here is not a good translation because, uh, and I'll quote the verse again. Where was it? Um, Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The word in Greek for natural is psuche. I'm not going to ask you to say that, but it's where we get the word psyche from. You know, if you know the psyche, it has to do with one's own identity. But then the word that it has for spiritual is pneuma, and that's what we have for the, the Holy Spirit, the pneuma, Hagia Pneuma. It's saying that our bodies are currently associated with our spirits, but they will be raised associated with God's Holy Spirit. So be thinking of the language from Hebrews, which says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, separating bone from marrow, spirit from soul. Have you ever paid attention to that? I remember the first time I saw it, I was, what's the difference between a spirit and a soul? Well, it's that distinction, psuche versus pneuma. One is the animating life force that God has given me, you, and all people born in Adam. And then one is the Holy Spirit. So remember in Romans, it says the Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirit that we are children of God. And because of that witness, we cry, Abba, Father. So the, the life of a Christian is one where we have received spirits that animate our bodies, yes, that, that are associated and tied to our bodies. But those of us who have been born again in Christ Jesus, who've been uh, born again by water in the spirit, this is language from Jesus in the gospel of John, we receive the seal of his Holy Spirit, which then works in our lives to transform us so that we have the mind of Christ. What is, what is that transformation process? What do we call that? Where we go from being worldly creatures to heavenly creatures. Sanctification. You guys knew it. You just had the same brain fart Susie did. Sanctification is the process that we're all having and the question is, uh, uh, well, there is not a question. God is going to bring to fulfillment that which he began in us. He's began that process, and he is going to follow that process through in us. We had that conditional clause last week, if we remain faithful and obedient. So that's the thing that's before us right now. Are we interested in this bodily resurrection, this eternal unity with Christ and one another? If so, we need to first understand it and prepare for it, and secondly... We need to live in obedience to what has been asked of us. So that's where he's going to go.
So we stopped halfway through 44, new paragraph. If there is a natural body, and here it's talking about the psuche, the, the individual identity, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Remember that? Genesis chapter 2, God made Adam out of the ground, breathed life into him. He became a living being. So the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Who's the last Adam? Jesus, yes. And we've had this discourse in Romans as well. Jesus undoes the curse of Adam. But that's why I had the children go over this today. Are all people just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? The answer is no. Only those who are elected by God and united to Christ by faith. So that's the unequal calculus done in the Bible here. One inducted all humans into it. The next is all humans who are reborn in Christ Jesus. Verse 46. The spiritual did not come first. He's talking about the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam was made in the flesh, an earthly creature. So the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Remember, Christ Jesus came from heaven. The Logos, the eternal word of God, came from heaven and took on flesh. That's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. Verse 48. As was the earthly man, Adam... So are those who are of the earth, all humans born. And as is the heavenly man, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. And so that's the concern of Jesus in the Gospel of John. We have stories of him telling people, no, you're children of Satan. Okay, but you were children of light. And he's calling all the children of light to himself. Verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, all of us are born in the image of Adam, so shall we bear the image, so shall we bear, we in the church, the saints, the elect, those, the, the regenerate, we will bear the image, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. That's the promise, that's the good news. The good news is that God does not leave us in our sinful, fallen, broken, shameful estate. He restores us, saves us, makes us worthy to enter his kingdom. It's the most scandalous thing in all of creation. It's the most amazing, it's beyond the comprehension of anyone. This was a mystery from the beginning of the world. It was revealed in Christ Jesus. Our minds cannot wrap themselves around it. It is the most scandalous, undeserved free gift God could give. And he offers it to not the rich, not the smart, not the powerful, but the humble, the lowly, the meek, those who forsake themselves, forsake their sins, repent, and, and give themselves to Christ Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we're doing here, right? We are being renewed in our minds right now as we receive the word once again. I need to hear the word every day because every day I forget. I need to repent every day because every day Satan comes knocking and convincing me that I need to justify myself. I need to be prideful. I can, I can have my cake and eat it too, and every day I need to hear that word, no, Jeffrey. Here is what restored life looks like. Verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I hope you hear how this is connected to what I just said. Children of Adam cannot receive the kingdom, so we become children of the Father. He adopts us. By the Holy Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. We are adopted into his family and we receive, as heirs, the promises of the kingdom. Verse 51. Listen. 
I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What's sleep a euphemism for? Death. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He's talking about on the day of the Lord. Everybody doesn't die before the day of the Lord. There are people still alive. So some Christians, a lot of Christians for the last 2,000 years have gone to sleep. They have died. But some are going to be alive as well. And when that happens, verse 52, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Trumpet is associated with a military charge. So if you've read Revelation, you know what it's talking about here. When God's heavenly armies descend to earth, the last trumpet will sound, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He's talking about those, those spiritual bodies we're going to be given, those heavenly bodies. In an instant, all of a sudden, the dead are going to be raised, and we who are alive will be changed, and the dead in Christ will be changed. Verse 53, for the perishable, that's our bodies right now, must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with, the Im if, with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. That's a, you see the quotes there. It's a prophecy from Isaiah. And then he quotes Joel in verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What he's saying here, death, sin, the law are all tied together. We covered this ground in Romans. If there's anything in Romans or in 1 Corinthians that you need to hear again, we've got it all on the church's podcast. You can go back and look. But essentially what he's talking about here is a future day. Let me ask you this question. Does God negotiate? God does not negotiate. Does God compromise? No. No. God does not negotiate. He does not compromise. Whenever God has a victory, is it a partial victory or a total victory? Total. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The notion there being, there isn't anything remaining. God has not negotiated with death or with sin. There is no negotiation. It's a complete and utter victory on God's part. It is a complete and utter defeat of sin and sickness, sorrow, sadness, Satan. No negotiation. God does not negotiate with terrorists, okay? And we fully anticipate God being entirely victorious over sin in our bodies, in our lives, in this church, in the world. That is the promise of the gospel, and we do not negotiate it down to oh, I'm just dead in my sins and there's nothing can be done. I'm just going to get by in this world and then he'll take me up to glory by and by. That is selling the glory, the gospel, short. If we believe in God's power, if we believe in the presence and power of his Holy Spirit, we believe in sanctification. We believe in his defeat of death and his victory forever and us being a part of it. Amen? I feel like I'm preaching very clearly today. I hope you're receiving it very clearly. Verse 58, here's the exhortation. This is him wrapping it all up, and then we have logistics after this. But, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. The notion here being God doesn't compromise, and neither should you. Neither should we. 
Holiness is not a negotiation. We're not going through our lives negotiating with Satan. Oh, okay, I can send a little bit today. Oh, I don't have to take my faith so serious today. That's how losers think, and you will lose on the last day. We're called to win, to be victorious in Christ Jesus. We're not victims, we're victors, right? And if Christ Jesus conquered on the cross, so can we who have his spirit conquer in our lives. Amen? So he's saying, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. What if something kills you unless you move? Die. Christ stands on the other hand of death, on the other side of death. We have nothing to fear, amen? Let nothing move you. Stand firm. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's talked about vanity a few times in this book, hasn't he? Vanity meaning it means nothing. He's saying, he said several times that if you are not obedient in your Christian walk, your faith means nothing. He said at the beginning of chapter 15 that if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection, your faith means nothing. It's vain. It's purposeless. He's saying if you want to have a life that is the opposite of vain, that has ultimate meaning, then that life is lived fully giving yourself to the labor and work and service of God. So here's a very practical question. How do I know if in my daily life I am laboring for the Lord? What is the litmus test that I can apply to the words I say, the things that I think, the things that my body does? What is the evidence that it's labor for the Lord and not for the world, not for myself? I, I'm going to give you an answer, and it's not my answer. I, I stole it from these guys. Anything you think, say, or do that you wouldn't do if you didn't know Jesus. What are you doing in your life that is different because you know Jesus? Is there anything in your life that is a reflection of, oh, I know Jesus, I've, I anticipate a bodily resurrection, I know I'm called towards holiness, so here's why I live this way? Or, conversely, bad case, do I live just the same as worldly ends? Do I do nothing different because I know Jesus? That's the measure. All throughout this book, He's wrapping it up now. All throughout this book, he has been highlighting the Corinthians don't have a proper distinction between the ways of the world and the ways of Christ and his kingdom. And he's gone through several different issues, listing the theology, the, 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 the principles, and now he's coming to the end and saying the expectation is that you stand firm in the heavenly way of life. And in, just as a brief refresher, he said if you're going through your life thinking about you, your rights, your independence, what you need, that's not the heavenly way of life. We go through life concerned with each other. God's glory first, the benefit of others second, ourselves last. That's the primary thing he lifted up throughout all of this. My hope as we're wrapping all this up is that as you guys are going home and reflecting on your lives that you have been equipped. That's my job is to equip the saints for ministry, right? That's language explicitly from Ephesians. I've been trying to give you everything that I can, the clearness of this language, so that you can look in the mirror and assess your life in light of who Christ calls you to be. And if you have the sense that I'm not doing that well for you, then you need to privately seek me out and help me do that for you because otherwise you are just wasting a paycheck on me. That is my number one job is to equip you for ministry. Let's get into the logistics of this last chapter. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, what day is that? Oh, that's Sunday. 
Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So this is one of the scriptures used to explain why it is we gather on Sundays, not uh, on Saturdays always, although early Christians gathered on both days. But secondly, it has a financial model for supporting the church. It's not supposed to be, here's a need, let's take a gathering. It's supposed to be a collection. It's supposed to be everybody regularly sets aside a portion of what they make for God's glory in his church. Just remind me real quick, is the church something that man thought up or is it something that God thought up? God. Jesus was very clear his intention was for us to have the church. And so he's very clear. We're not supposed to be going from emergency to emergency. Oh, we've got to fund this. Oh, we've got to fund this. We're just supposed to be collectively being uh, offering what we have to offer for God's. And let me tell you, I, I have to brag on the church this week. The church, because we have people who give that way, had resources to help people in need. More than once. All of a sudden, the church is, is muscular and able to do this ministry. And, you know, there's some people, they want their church on a shoestring budget. They want everybody to, to always be anxious. and do, that's, Who loves being anxious? No. What's wonderful is when everybody's doing their part, everybody is carrying their own weight, we all have a common pot, and we all know that the money is being spent for God's glory. And that's what we've got here. It's a very exceptional church. If there's anybody who doesn't feel good about giving to the church, that's another thing. You need to seek me out privately and talk to me because that's a very important part of faith. Jesus was talking about money often, okay? It's not one of those things you get to set off to the side. Your relationship with money matters. That's why he's talking about it right here. He's saying, here's how you need to collect money. Here's how it's going to be spent. It's going to be sent to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, that's where the seat of the church was. That's where the church was being run from at that time. All these different churches throughout the world, they were connected to the church in Jerusalem. That's where James, a brother of Jesus, ran the church. That's where the apostles were based, and that's where they were commissioned to go out to other parts of the world. This is a proto-denomination. Sarah Beth gasped. It would seem to me and to others that denominations were not the invention of man, but are biblically patterned. And have we screwed up denominations? Yeah, badly. Just like I screw up every day in sin. Now, does that mean that I just give up on myself and say, I'm just dead in my sins? No. I repent. I do better. Same thing with denominations. Same thing with church. That's how we collectively act. Here, the, the clear expectation is, you're all tied together from the church in Jerusalem. Take a regular offering. It'll be sent there for God's glory. Verse 5, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay, I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, y'all remember his name. Paul's written two letters to him that are in our Bible. He's also mentioned in Acts of the Apostles. When he comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. This indicates to me that uh, 
Paul knows there's a rocky road ahead. Remember, the, the letter starts with, there are factions, they're arguing, they're dividing. He's sending Timothy into the fray. He's saying, you treat Timothy right. Verse 12, now, about our brother Apollos. You remember Apollos was brought up at the beginning of this book. His was one of the names that was being used as division. Well, I was, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Cephas. I was baptized by Apollos. Well, Apollos isn't there anymore, and he's learned, apparently through Paul, or maybe someone else in the Corinthian church, that they're using his name to justify division in the church. Paul says, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will when he has the opportunity. That's all it tells us about him. But I, I kind of imagine that Apollos is going, hey, if, if they're going to use my involvement to foster division, then I'm just not going to be involved. Remember Paul at the beginning, he said, I thank God I didn't baptize hardly any of you. Because he didn't want them to use him as a reason to divide. Verse 13, here's a, a little more godly instruction. Be on your guard. Why would we need to be on our guard? Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. He's waiting to destroy you. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. We just, got, we just heard about this. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. That, that right there is so simple and so sweet, it's worth memorizing, don't you think? Verse 15, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Who here loves submission? Who loves to submit? God bless you, brother. I hate it. I hate submission, but that is a biblical injunction, and not just submit to God. You know, a lot of people say, I'll submit to God, but no man. Well, here he's telling you, submit. In Ephesians, he says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. He talks about how we share in our households. He's talking about in the household of God. There are certain people who've been in it for a long time. They've proven their worth. We need to submit to them. You need to submit to them. Verse 17, I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. He seems to be talking about people from Corinth that people are disrespecting. He's saying, no, they deserve respect. They, they have behaved honorably in the way that you should have. They're coming back to you and you need to respect them. So now he said that about Timothy and now he said it about three of theirs. Verse 19, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. They're talked about in Acts of the Apostles. And so does the church that meets in their house. Remember, the church is not a building. We call this a church building, but church literally means assembly, right? So there is an assembly of people who've been uh, bought with the blood of Christ Jesus, who are now saints, who assemble in Priscilla and Aquila's house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is something ancient Christians do. There are lots of ways in which I, I, I'm, I'd like to think I have the universal mind of Christ, but kissing another dude on the lips is just not for me. I, it's what they did. That back in the day, they would have men on one side, women on one side, and they would share in the kiss of peace together, kiss them right on the smackers. I just, guys, I can't, mm, I don't want to do it. I'm not going to try and, I'm going to push a hundred things before I push that one. But the key there being, 
we should feel close to one another. We should be vulnerable to one another. We should feel, you know, who are the people that we do kiss on the lips? Family, right? That's how we should feel. That's how close we should feel together. So whenever I've tried to minister to people in the church, everybody is proud. People like doing things their own way, and they don't want to burden the church. And I have to say, let the church be the church. And I've had people say, I don't even know what that means. Because we have so many churches that gather in buildings, but they don't take care of one another like that. They're not vulnerable to one another like that. But that's, that's the nature of the church. I would say that even if they have church written on the outside of the building, if they're not taking care of one another, if they're not submitting to one another, if they're not loving one another, if they're not speaking the truth to one another, they are not a church. I, I Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone, I just think this is so classy. <laughs> Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. He ends his letter with a curse. What a guy, right? He knows there's going to be detractors that are not, not receiving it well. He says, just curse, curse them. They don't love the Lord. I, that's all he has to say about them. Come, Lord. That, be, that, that, that word right there, in the, it's an Aramaic, Maranatha, it means uh, come Lord Jesus. Yeah. Uh, and early Christians said that just to say, Lord Jesus, come, bring your kingdom now. This, this stinks. We're ready, you know. And that's, that's an entirely appropriate word for us to say today. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Everybody say amen. Brothers and sisters, we read all of 1 Corinthians. I feel good about it. I, I would strongly urge you, if you missed any weeks, go, go and find what you missed out. It's, it's been an amazing masterpiece that all fits together for God's glory and for our upbuilding. As I, you know, we're moving on to Jonah next week, and we're going to be in a different headspace, so we're going to be closing out 1 Corinthians. The things that I hope hold on to you are a great discomfort with the ways in which we are seduced by the world and, and the ways in which we're called to Christ. And I hope that, that more and more it's like oil and water for you, where before maybe it fit together, but now it just doesn't. You know, it, it can be, discomfort can be a very godly blessing. But also, the thing I'm hoping that is a blessing to you is as we're meditating on, okay, what's the good news here? The fact that God does not negotiate with sin or darkness, and that he hasn't abandoned you to sin, that he has made promises regarding your sanctification, your walking in the light, your having his power and presence in your life. I think, you know, I, I said it before, and I'll end on this. I think most churches today proclaim something less than the gospel, namely that, that, that God is in some sense a feat or uh, impotent, unable to work the transformation that were promised in the Bible. And, and I think 1 Corinthians make very clear that God is not lacking in any way. God, God's hand does not falter. God does not slumber. He does not negotiate with evil. He, he oh, guys, he is going to be victorious. He is winning right now through us. And if you don't see it, pray for God's eyes, God to open your eyes so that you see what he is doing among us. We need to move on. We need to go back out into the world and actually be Christians. I hope that this book has helped you better understand what that looks like. Our closing hymn as we stand and sing is going to recommit us to walk in that pathway and give us inspiration, hopefully, to walk, walk that path well.